that was, that was for the addition, sorry. Hey, to follow up, uh, one of Kent's announcements on that July 3rd uh, picnic, it, it takes a lot of hands, each one doing just a little bit to pull that off. So if you're thinking you have the ability to help at all, it's things like picking up ice on the way here Sunday morning. It's 15 minutes before service to take tables and the non-perishable food stuff out under the tent. It's some simple things. So the sign-up sheet is on the welcome table out there, so I hope you check that out before you head home. Uh, let me. This is a lengthy introduction to the song we're in this morning, but, but we'll start there anyway. The Old Testament book of 1 Samuel is the story of Israel's last judge. It's really the transition. The last judge is the prophet Samuel. And then you get into its first king, the nation's first king, King Saul. And then you also get into the introduction and some of the adventures of the young shepherd boy who would ultimately replace Saul as Israel's second king. And so in that book... David is anointed by Samuel to succeed Saul. He kills the Philistine giant Goliath, and he really becomes the hero in Israel. The nation sings David's praises, not King Saul's. And he's become so much of a threat to King Saul that King Saul, who has dynastic hopes for his family to remain kings of Israel past his own lifetime, takes it on himself to kill King David. So when King David came to know with certainty that Saul meant to kill him, he fled. And that's where we're going to pick up in the introduction. So if you have a Bible or your app open, 1 Samuel 21, starting at verse 10 through verse 1 of chapter 22. And again, this is just introduction for the song that we'll get into. The text there says, David rose and fled that day from Saul. He went to Achish, the king of Gath, remember most of those were city-states, so the city would have its own king. The Philistines were an association of cities, but this city has its own king, Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And remember, that's boasting on the Philistines David had slew. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So just for a moment as we think about, put yourself in David's shoes, he's clearly desperate and he's making some decisions in very desperate times. So first, he's desperate to escape King Saul who wants to kill him. And, and in that desperation, he flees to Gath. Now, if you were there with David and you said his bright idea is to flee to the city, that he's famous for killing its giant, would that be the place you would tell him that that maybe appears as a good option for him? But again, he's desperate. So Gath, it seems strange that any place would feel safer than your own backyard, but the enemy camp at that point feels safer to David than Israel. This initial desperation led to more desperation as he was called before 
Achish. So now he's pointed out to the king, this is the giant slayer, this is the guy, this is our chief enemy, our nemesis, and here he is in your backyard. And so this is David's experience. He's out of the frying pan. Israel, now he's into the fire there in the city of Gath. Desperation on top of desperation. <laughs> so you got to love this, right? So David the giant slayer, the hero of Israel, is reduced to the status of an actor. That's a put down on actors, isn't it? He's reduced to the status of an actor pretending that he's mad. Before we go on to, I'd say this. We, uh, two things. In the text, in the story of 1 Samuel, and in the songs that we'll read, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 we'll just mention, Scripture doesn't look back on this experience and give a judgment. It doesn't say that was a great idea. It doesn't say that was a lousy idea. But for sure, one thing, when you and I feel desperate, we want to be really careful about the decisions we make. So I feel desperate. I feel constrained. The bottom's fallen out of life. Whatever that looks like, I feel threatened. And guys, if you haven't had this, you will. Life will throw you curves and you feel desperate and you feel pressed and you're not sure what to do and you're not sure what best situations look like. You want to be really careful about making decisions in those times and moments. We want to slow down there and we want to be really careful to say, Lord, what's your mind in this? I don't want to just run off and do something because I'm feeling desperate. And usually what you see in Scripture in the Old Testament after the land of promise is given to Israel, if you see Jews leaving the land of promise, it's usually a sign of judgment. And it's always a sign of judgment if they go east out of the land of promise. So the inference is probably that this wasn't a good idea. The scripture doesn't say that explicitly, but again, for us, we want to say when we're seeing ourselves in desperate times, slow down when we're making decisions because often they become decisions we wish we hadn't made. Be careful when we're feeling desperate as David was. So how would David look back? So here he is, he's reduced to feigning madness. How will he see that in the future? Because we know he's delivered. This is still on the front end of his life. He's not instituted yet, ensconced as king yet. So really his story's just beginning. How will he look back on that? And how do we look back on our times of desperation? You know, we made decisions, how did that turn out? We asked God to deliver us. God came through. He did something or something else, one thing or another. How do we tend to frame those experiences, desperate situations in our own life? This episode was so significant in David's life that he wrote not one but two different songs about it. So Psalm 34 that we'll look at this morning, but also Psalm 56. Psalm 34 is a song of thanksgiving. It's a call to God's people to rise up and praise the God who answers and delivers. Psalm 56, if you look at that later, is more a retelling of what was going through his mind in the moment. So Psalm 34 that we'll look at this morning, really looking back and sort of drawing, taking my cues from what I saw and what I learned, Psalm 56 is more of this is what was going through my mind in the moment. This was my experience. The last time we were in Psalms, Psalm 33, we saw that praise... Scripture said praise is becoming, it befits the righteous, that when you and I give praise to God, it's like wearing a suit that's tailored for us. It, it fits just right. Psalm 34 gives from David specific reason 
to praise God. And specifically it is, I called out to God to be delivered and God delivered me. So I'm praising the God who answers prayer and who delivers when we're pressed and out of resources and not able to deliver ourselves. Uh, if you've got your Bible or your app, we'll start now in Psalm 34. That's all by way of introduction. The heading to this song says this, it's of David or it's by David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, the heading says Abimelech. 1 Samuel says Akish. So the Akish of 1 Samuel is the Abimelech of this song. Abimelech is a title. Akish is his name. So this is one and the same person and event. And starting with the introduction, verses 1 through 3, are the introduction. So this is how David is going to look back on this experience. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So David went through the experience. He called out to God. He was delivered. And now as he looks back, he frames the whole experience as this call to give God thanks and praise, and not just, not just of or from that experience. But look at verse 1. He says, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. His praise continually in my mouth. Verse, verse 2, boasting in the Lord and in what he had done. So when he looks back, and you know this isn't a situation, if you're in a tight squeeze, and you come out of it okay, you, you usually feel this real sense of, of relief. Now, I might just feel relieved, but David goes beyond, I just felt relieved, to I am so thankful for what God did. All I can think when I look back is, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. So he says, he's so jazzed about looking back at what God did for him that he says, magnify the Lord with me, Let's exalt his name together. So David comes out personally praising God, but for him it's not enough. He wants others to join him because he is so thankful and he finds God so praiseworthy, the God who hears and answers prayer. You know, usually before services begin, we pray. We, we always pray before services, but usually one of the things we pray about is this. We know that everybody comes into the service from a different place in life. So some of us may come in and we feel uh, like we're ready to give thanks and praise. But others of us will come in, we're carrying burdens on our heart or our mind, we feel stressed, we feel wigged out, life is not going the way we want. You get the picture. You, everybody's coming in from a different place. And so on one hand, we pray regularly, Lord, would you meet every person where they're at? Because you know what their needs are. So if that's something that's said in the message, if that's something that occurs during fellowship, or that's something during the singing time of worship, Lord, would you speak to every person where they're at so they know they heard from you? That's the individual call. Lots of people come in, and the thought is, man, I need something. I'm coming needy. But somewhere in all of that, we want to join with David's thought of, we want to rouse ourselves, and sometimes that's just remembering what God has done for us, or it could be remembering Scripture like Psalm 34. We want to rouse ourselves to join with David and others like him in giving God his due. Magnify means to lift up, to make much of God. So even if we come in dispirited and downcast, we still want to say with David, we want to magnify the Lord. And what you find inevitably is this, is it not? 
when I give God his due, when I declare what's true of him, I am lifted up in the doing. So even if I come in dispirited, I'm despondent, I'm not feeling the love, when I give myself to do what David's calling us to do, to make much of God, what you'll see is when you raise God up, God raises you up too. You will find yourself encouraged. So we want to rouse ourselves, even on mornings where we're not feeling the love, we want to say, Lord, you're worthy of that. We want to magnify you either for what we know you've done in our own life or because we know who you are and what you're like from Scripture or from the testimonies of others. So David looks back on the experience and he just says, I just want to praise God and thank him having come in out of that tight space. How do we choose to reflect on our tight spaces, on our deliverances? Or you might look back on your life and say, I prayed for deliverance and God didn't deliver me. But I would tell you, we'll talk about some of this in a moment, but if your faith is intact, you've been delivered. If your faith is intact. Guys, at the end of the day, the deliverance we need is not an extension of our physical life on the earth. Because again, we're all given enough time. We're all either going to die, this body ends, or Jesus calls and we join him. And we're good with either. But the preservation of physical life on the earth cannot be your and my highest goal. God sometimes delivers us in time and space and gives us an extension of life, all of which is great. But, but ultimately, if your faith is intact, you've been delivered. Verses 4 through 7, when David looks back, he frames it as this opportunity to give thanks. But in the moment of need, verses 4 through 7, he says he, he did one thing singularly. He sought the Lord. He frames it in a little different language. Verse 4, I sought the Lord. So I'm in this terrible place. I have no human help. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Look back at verses 4, 5, and 6. David says, verse 4, I sought the Lord. Verse 5, those in trouble are meant to look to the Lord. Verse 6, David cried out to the Lord. So David says singularly, when I felt trapped and there's no way out, I turned all my attention to the Lord. I cried out. I've turned my face to him. I sought him singularly. So I'm in a fix. I can't fix it myself. I turn to the Lord, I give him all my attention, and I make him my hope. Now, guys, when, when the bottom falls out of our life, what's our tendency? So it, it could vary quite a bit. So uh, our girls had a book, uh, Frog and Toad, Deep Theology, in children's books, right? Frog and Toad, yeah. So one of them is called Tear Water Tea. And you know what you do if you want to make a good cup of Tear Water Tea? Boo-hoo, we cry. We cry to make tear water tea. Sometimes our response to life is tear water tea, isn't it? We're crying, right? We're just singing the blues. Life has happened and I'm singing the blues. I'm making tear water tea. Or sometimes we tell everyone around us how bad life has treated us, right? We splash it on social media. We tell our friends, life is ripping me off. I have no... 
There's some great line in the movie, I have no bush, I have no bird. You know, everything's gone. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes we try to answer this ourselves, right? We, f- we try and figure it out until we realize we can't figure it out or we simply don't have the means for a solution. Sometimes, God willing, we ask others to pray. That's a good thing to do, right? To ask others to pray for us. Absolutely, absolutely. But here's the thing. Usually it's this. The first thing you turn to is the thing you trust. Okay, the first thing we turn to is usually the thing we trust. So look back in your life in those times when you said, you know, life's thrown me something and I can't handle it. I don't have the solution. What's my first instinct? What's my first instinct? David says, I just did one thing. I sought the Lord. I cried out to him. I turned towards the Lord. And that's what we should do. Now, we can do other things. We can certainly ask others to pray for us. That should be regular. It's one of the beauties, by the way, of being in a home group or a small group, right? I can tell someone else what's going on, and I know they're praying for me, that we have that relationship with each other. But the first thing we want to do is what David did. He cried out to the Lord. He sought the Lord. And then look what happened. Verse 4, God answered him and delivered him. Verse 5, he was delivered from shame. Verse 6, God saved him from trouble. So David says, I did one thing. I cried out to God. I turned to him. I put my hopes in him. And he came through and he delivered and he saved me. In enemy territory, no way to help himself. David says God came through. Now verse 7 is interesting. He says, uh, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. That's kind of a little bit of an odd thought. It sort of comes out of left field. What does he mean by the angel of the Lord? So that's an interesting term. It's a phrase you'll see throughout the Old Testament. And it's usually what uh, theologians call a theophany. Theophany, two different words, Greek words joined together. And it means God appears. God appears. So when you read the Old Testament, you'll see these examples where it says, somebody shows up, or oftentimes the phrase, the angel of the Lord shows up. And from the story, you understand this is no mere man, and it's not an angel. It's, it's the second person of the Trinity taking on a temporary form by which he interacts with someone in the moment. So when God visits with two angels, Abraham, and sits down with a meal, that's not another angel. That's God the Son promising Abraham, you're, Sarah's going to have that baby, just like you were promised earlier. Well, David brings that phrase in here. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And it's, it's this thought. <clears throat> When I cried out and I needed help, and I'm in the enemy camp, no one person can help me, but he says, I still feel like this. God's holy angel, God himself is with me, and his army is with me, and he's surrounding me and protecting me from harm. An army that I can't see and others can't see, but he's present with me and he's defending me. To know God, he says, is like having God himself his presence with me, and his army is surrounding me. And who's going to break through God's army? No one's going to break through God's army. Now, you've got a variation on the theme. The angel of the Lord isn't the phrase that's used. But if you look later at 2 Kings 6, you've got this great story where Elisha the prophet has been warning the king of Israel where and when to avoid, times and places, because the king of Syria is going to come and try and take him out. 
And the king of Syria is getting frustrated and he says, hey, we've got somebody in our midst is a traitor because all our plans, the, the Jews, they keep getting warned off. And one of his guys says, that's not it. He says, it's this guy, it's this Elijah. God tells him what you're saying in your living room. God tells him. And so then he warns Israel, you've got to get rid of that guy. So the king of Syria sends his army down to the city of Dothan where Elisha and his servant are. And the servant is wigged out because suddenly that town, that walled city, is surrounded by the army of Syria. And the servant is wigged. He feels like David did in this moment. And Elisha's cool. And he, he says, Junior, you don't understand. There's more with us than with them. So his helper's like, I, I don't get it. So Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes. And what does he see? Well, he sees an army of fiery horses and chariots surrounding the city. God's army, the host of the Lord, was there defending Elisha and his servant. Now, Elisha could see it, but his servant couldn't until he was prayed for. That's kind of the thought here. David says, when I was in that place of trouble, I knew the angel of the Lord, the armies of the Lord, as it were, that couldn't be seen. They were still around me protecting me. Joshua 5 is another more direct example of this. When Joshua is outside the city of Jericho and they're going to start the battle to take the land, Joshua 5 says he runs into this guy and he's like, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or are you on their side? And he says, you don't get it. I'm on neither side. I'm the captain of the host of the Lord. That's the angel of the Lord. That's Christ before he's Jesus. And you know, I wonder who pushed those walls down. Well, there was an invisible army there, right? All Joshua saw was the captain of the army, but the army was there. So David's bringing that imagery in. He said, even when I can see no other help around me, I know this, God is with me and his army's with me and I'm surrounded by him and his protecting care. That's a pretty good day. Now, we want to be careful. Um, you know, we want God to be the God of blue skies and green lights, right? I've got a wonderful plan for my life, and I'm glad to tell God what it looks like. And you probably have a wonderful plan for your life, and you're glad to tell God what that looks like. And you know, generally what you find is it doesn't quite work out that way, does it? Life doesn't come out that way. When we pray today, and we're in some straits, and we, we have situations we can't control, and we do what David did. We call out, Lord, would you deliver me? You know, would you be the answer to my prayer? We don't always know what that answer is going to be like, do we? You think of David's life for just a minute. When you read First and Second Samuel, and you read the Psalms, you get the opinion, this guy faced trial after trial after trial. In fact, from chapter 21 to the end of 1 Samuel, David is on the run from Saul. That was not an easy life. So God was still answering his prayer. It's not because he wasn't God's man or God somehow didn't like him or love him, but he experienced many, many trials. Now let me just give you an example of some of the ways when we're thinking about deliverance and we're informing our minds biblically, you and I live in the New Covenant in the church age, so we want to be careful when we take Old Testament passages that we're applying them the way we're meant to, okay? So just here's some examples. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul says this. 
He said, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's just like David. We're in a circumstance we can't save ourselves. It looks like the jig is up, life is over. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Okay, Lord, I can't save myself. I'm in your hands. What do you want to do? He delivered us from such a deadly peril, just like David. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us. Paul knew what God's call in his life was. Paul knew that the call wasn't finished, that his life was going to be preserved because God had plans for him. He said he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So when Paul's going about his business doing what God called him to do, he said his hope for life and the extension of life was based on God's promises to him, God's call in his life. He says God delivered us in the past and we know he's going to do it again because he still, my, my mission is not finished. So for his purposes, God may deliver us from a great number of perils as he did David. At other times, for God's purposes, he doesn't deliver us from physical or earthly harm, but he preserves our faith, and that's the thing. That's the thing. God delivered Paul and David through, but not from, many trials. So in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God delivered us. Read chapter 11. It wasn't one deliverance. It was over and over and over again because he went through so many desperate times. God saved him through them, not from them. But consider this. Um, <clears throat> I like to think of... Uh, if you come to the United States or the Western world and we have affluence and we have health generally and we've got the stuff, you know, we've got houses and cars and what, what have you. You know the prosperity gospel? It sells here, you know, in the Western world because we got stuff. This is the thing. If that same message doesn't sell in Africa, China, Korea, it's not true. It's not real. Are you with me? Every Sunday, we pray for persecuted Christians around the world. They're in straits like David was. And guys, sometimes they're not preserved. They die. You re this is uh, Voice of the Martyrs. You can go on any day. Pastors gunned down in, as they're giving their Sunday message. Families burned out, shot down as they flee. Guys, this is life. For Christians that God loves as much as he loves you and me in other parts of the world today. So we want to be careful that our assumption that God's deliverance is blue skies and green lights, this is not biblical reality. And it's not reality on the ground for many people just like us, loved by God, saved by Jesus, given the Spirit, same set of promises, their experience is very different. So we want to be careful when we go to apply this, right? We want to be careful. Acts 12, 2, so Paul says, God delivered me. God delivered David. Acts 12, 2, you know what? God didn't deliver James because Herod had him executed. How did James pray before that? I don't know. But his life was not preserved. God said, I, we're good and you're coming home. And he was executed. And so what you see is when we go to apply these passages, ultimately we want to say something like Jesus does before the crucifixion. Lord, your will be done. I want deliverance, and I hope it looks like this. 
but you know best and you know your plans for my life and I'm submitting myself to you and I'm crying out to you in my desperation and my need, but ultimately I know you know what's best and so I'm in your hands. You deliver as you see fit. Let me give you some examples of things you can absolutely count on being delivered by God. Romans 7, 24 and 25. God delivers us from the power of sin. Now guys, that's not hyperbola. That's real. Now we sin. We still sin. First John assures us of that. We still sin. But it's not hyperbola. It's not pie in the sky to say God delivers us from the power of sin. We don't have to sin. The power of sin has been broken in your life and mine in our co-crucifixion with Christ. This is Romans 5 and 6. We've been buried with Christ in baptism. We've been raised with Christ. Sin has no dominion over us anymore. You've been delivered from the power of sin. Absolutely. It's a given. Lord, help me see my deliverance from sin today. Amen. Delivered from the power of sin. Galatians 1, 4, we've been delivered from this evil world. Guys, do you know this world is evil? It's wicked. Not a little, a lot. And the truth is we still live in so much of God's common grace, good stuff, Good food, which, which I love. I'm good. With God's common grace, I think it's spectacular. And I ask for more of it all the time. Good sleep, health, food, right? This is good. Not knocking any of this at all. But, but <laughs> that's not the end of the day. God's work in your life and mine, do you remember from Romans 8 what God's great work in yours is? Always at all times, it's to transfer you into the image of Christ. God's great work is not Mike's happy meal it's not your glorious Sunday afternoon nap or mine. God's ultimate goal in your life and mine is to transform us into the image of Christ. That's what everything is being used for, okay? So in this evil, wicked world that has real power, guys, you know, as uh, at First John, that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, you know, why are things going south? Well, because the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. But you know what? If you're a Christian, guess what? You don't. God has delivered you from the power of this evil age and all the evil influence that's part of it. We are delivered from that. Another one, uh, Hebrews 2 verse 15, delivered from the fear of death. I hope no one here is afraid to die. Uh, I, I had a lot of respect and affection for my dad, but his wife... His wife, his mom died when he was a young boy and, and fear of death followed him the rest of his life. And this was a guy, he was shot down in a plane over Germany. He parachuted out. He was a prisoner of war for a year and a half. You know what I'm saying? He'd face death. And you know what he still, he was afraid to die. And this was a verse he and I went over together. Dad, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christians have freedom from the fear of death. That's a given. We are delivered from that fear. And if you still are afraid to die, guys, you need to embrace this. My life is in God's hands. If I live long or I live short, my life is in God's hands. And to go and depart and be with Christ, Philippians 1, is far better than anything you and I can experience on this earth. As we'll see again here in just a second. Delivered safely home. This is 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 18. I'm going to skip through 
briefly. But, you know, this is Paul's last letter. It's his swan song, and he's writing to Tim, you know, his protege. But listen to part of what he says. Verse 16, excuse me, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. When, When I was up against the wall, just like David, there was no one around to help me. He says, may it not be charged against them. They fled. They shouldn't have. They should have exercised loyal kindness to Paul. They didn't. They blew it. He's all by himself. He says, Lord, don't hold it against him. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me. David says, the angel of the Lord's there. Paul says, you know what? I couldn't see him, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. You remember in prison, we've got Paul's prison epistles. And Paul said, when I was arrested, it didn't reduce the degree to which the gospel was being proclaimed. It, in fact, enlarged it. This was his goal. This was his call in his ministry. So that the gospel would be fully proclaimed. He said, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. So if opposition was like a lion and the lion's coming for me, Paul says, I was delivered. Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely home into his heavenly kingdom. How did Paul's life end? Executed under Nero. Was his expectation met? Was he delivered from every evil deed? Did he arrive safely to God's heavenly kingdom? Yeah, he did. So what Nero could do in taking Paul's life simply ushered Paul into Christ's presence. That's the ultimate deliverance. So we can hold our own lives lightly or loosely because we know we're not going to come home any sooner than God calls us home. Your life is safe no matter what happens, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on. Your physical earthly life is safe until God says it's time to come home. And when he calls home, you know what? I want to go. Amen. Amen. Verses 8 through 10, you've got this invitation to praise. (laughs) This is uh, one, verse 8 is probably the verse that this psalm is best known for. So David's come out of this experience and he's jazzed about what God's done for him. But he knows he's speaking to people who maybe they hadn't had that experience yet. So how can he help them get the same perspective he has about praising God? Verse 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, his holy ones, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So David says, I've had this experience. It's framed my reference for God in life. I just want to thank God and I want to praise him. But he's looking out to people and he says, maybe that hasn't happened for you yet. So he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. He basically says, you need your own experience with the Lord. You need your own deliverances. You need your own close escapes. You need your own times when you've called out to God and God answered. Guys, if I showed you a picture of apple pie, would you have any idea what apple pie was? Really? None. You'd say, I see the picture, and I say, I identify, that's apple pie. Until you've had it in your hand and you smelled it, cinnamon, apple, sugar, until you've tasted it, 
you don't know. You say, I, I know, but you really don't know. So David says, you need to taste and see. You need to have your own experiences of God coming through in your life. I was on a walk this morning. Who's loving these long Sunday mornings besides me? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I got a nice walk in. I'm in the fields, and I see a bluebird on a post. He's eating a big bug. It's a good morning for him. Big bug, and he's eating away. So I see him from a distance. You guys know what these look like, right? The, so it's just a flash of blue, right? But you don't, if that's all you see, if, if like me, if that's all you see, you don't know what a bluebird looks like. So I put my binoculars up. And, and this somewhat dull thing that I can make out a little bit becomes this vibrant blue, purple, and burnt orange on his chest. Guys, they are glorious. So if I see him from a distance and say, I know a bluebird, I don't know a bluebird until I've seen it up close, until my experience is adequate to say, I've really seen it. I've really tasted it. Well, that's what David is saying to them. He says, guys, you've got to know God for yourself. You've got to have those times when you pray to him and you seek him first and foremost and you see him come through. Taste and see. You know, there's a, a passage in Malachi, Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, and the Jews, God bless them, they're back in the land of promise and they're not subject to idolatry anymore. God bless them again, but they're, they're fallen out. They've become sort of religious hypocrites. And one of the things they're not doing is they're not honoring God in their giving. And this is not a message on giving. Your wallet is safe. But this is what God says to them. He says, uh, test me and see. They, their covenant required them to give certain things and then called them out of thanksgiving to give even more. But God says to them, you test me in this and see. I've already given you my word. That I, you, give, you give your first and best to me. That's out of law. We won't go into all of that. He says, and I will provide your needs. So in that passage, he says, test me and see. I'll open the windows of heaven. I'll pour out on you blessing you can't constrain or contain. That's sort of the thought here. David's saying to us and to the people of his day, you got to know this for yourself. And guys, this is what it means at least. It means we know what God has promised. It means we're in relationship to him. It means that we're calling out to him in our needs so that we see him come through. That's tasting and seeing. One example, we were, uh, my sanity annually used to rely on a week in the mountains of Colorado. I had to get out of Topeka. I had to get away from all my work. I had to get away from summer heat and humidity. It was Colorado or bust. Well, one year we had our, our arrangements were made. We're supposed to leave Friday to Colorado and it's Wednesday. And I told Kath, still remember this vividly on the back, back porch area. I said, honey, listen, if we don't get $350 by, by today, by Wednesday, we're not going. We need to call off the trip because we, d we just don't have the money to fund it. So we prayed. This, no kidding. So Wednesday evening, friends drove by. They came up. They said, we just wanted to say hi. And they gave me, they, no one else knew anything about this. And they gave me a check for guess how much? $350. See, that's tasting the scene. Lord, we've got a need. We're calling out to you, and God comes through. Now, again, he doesn't always come through the way we want, but that's the thought. We need to taste and see for ourselves. We've got to have our own experience. We've got to know God by experience. 
Those who come to experience God for themselves, who fear him, and this is all from the psalm, fear him as creator and judge, trust him as provider and shepherd, find a friend closer than a brother, and one more able and willing to provide for their needs than the lion, you know, the king of beasts, the epitome of some theme that could go out and get whatever he wanted, better than he could provide for himself in the Lord. We taste and see by taking God at his word, by trusting him, by seeking him in the midst of our trials, and by obeying him. And when we do that, guys, we find out he really is good. He lives up to the reputation David's giving him. Have we trusted Christ for salvation? Guys, salvation is eternal. If you have any doubt when you die, you're Christ and you're going to heaven, just like Paul said he would. Paul knew, right? He said, I'm going to the heavenly kingdom. If you have any doubt, this is the first place to, to taste and see that the Lord is good, is trusting Christ for salvation. We bring nothing but our need. We have no merit before God. By God's grace, we are saved by faith in Christ. That's it. If you have any doubt about that, you need to trust God and his word and the sufficiency of Christ and the promises of Christ for your eternal security in Christ, that you're Christ and you're Christ forever. That's the deal. That's where we start. Have we prayed to God as our only hope in our times of desperation? And guys, we need to. God may, God may send others along to help us, right? But we understand that it is God himself who is our help. He can use anything or anyone he wants, but it's God on whom our hopes are cast. It's not some person who's going to let us down. God himself. Can we and do we, like David, brag on the Lord for the answers he gives to prayer? And this is something, guys, I find oftentimes I've prayed about something. I've been anxious about something. How's something going to turn out? And I'll pray. I can lose sleep over something. And I'm praying about it. And it's resolved in a moment. And I just go, wow. And I go on with life. It's like, no. We should stop. We need to recognize, Lord, thank you. Prayed about it. You know, I was anxious, didn't know what to do. Thank you for coming through. We want to stop. And bragging on God is a good thing. That is magnifying God. It's making much of him. Verses 11 through 18, uh, David moves from invitation to instruction. He says, verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That verse 11, that phrase, Come, children, I will teach you. Now, this is not David suddenly going to the twos and threes nursery, okay? This is the language of Proverbs. He's saying to anyone who is willing to humbly accept wisdom and be taught like a child, he says, listen, here's the thing. Come children, let me tell you. You remember uh, Solomon, so David's writing this. Solomon penned or collected the Proverbs. And do you remember how chapter one starts? Uh, when I was... Um, a young son, uh, tender and only the only son in my father's sight, he taught me. Uh, David gave to Solomon what he wanted us to latch onto too. This sense of I'm a child being instructed by my father and he's got something worth hearing. That's what David says here. Come children, if, you're, if you want to learn and if you want to know something valuable, he says, act like a child and accept what I'm saying as the truth. Come children, he says, 
if do you want life, do you want long days, then you need to turn away from evil and do good. You need to seek peace and pursue it. Now notice, this is interesting to me, and, I, and I'm not sure I can explain all the reason why this was true for David. Look at the one thing he defines, seeking peace and pursuing it, turning from evil and doing good. The one example he gives in verse 13 is keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. He could have said all kinds of things. He said, could have said, don't, don't fall to idolatry or uh, take care of your wife or love your kids or obey. He could have said anything, right? But he focuses on words as the example. Now, my best guess on this is if you read Psalm 56, you'll see that people, he says in this setting, same setting, Psalm 34, he says people were twisting his words. They were speaking wrong about David. And I think that probably informs the reason he includes that here. But he says, don't speak hurtfully of others. Don't speak deceitfully to others. Let me ask you, if the use of our words spoken to others and about others is the metric of our God-fearingness, our godliness, how do we rate? How are we doing on that? Because remember, this is defining the person who's seeking God that God delights to save, to deliver, right? So how do we do, if I look at the words, what I say and how I say them to others, and what I say and how I say them about others, how are we doing on that? Guys, this is a huge temptation, you know, James 3 is all about our tongue and our words. And he says, he's speaking to Christians. He says, guys, these things should not be. It's like on one moment, your mouth is a spring of fresh water, and the next, it's poisonous. This, these things should not be. It's why he says, be quick to hear, but slow to speak. It's that same thing. So I find it very immensely interesting that the one criteria, the one concrete example he gives of turning from evil is the words we give of others and to others. That's a big one. Uh, verses 15 through 18 give us God's attitude towards those who seek to please him. David had come from a setting which no other person was there for him, but he found that he was never outside God's care. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. That's sort of the exception. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Look at that again. The, Lord, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ear towards their cry. If your kids are playing, if you're in the park and your kids are playing, even if you're trying to read a book or have a conversation, if you're a parent, what do, you, what do you find yourself constantly doing? You keep raising your eyes and you keep looking out for Junior to make sure Junior's okay. That your eyes, as this doting, loving parent, your eyes, they keep going to your kids to make sure they're okay. Well, David says that's what God is like. He's the best parent and his eyes are constantly on us. There's no surprises going on in your life to God. He sees everything that's going on. He's omniscient. He knows all things before they happen. But this is that thought that in the moment, God is watching over me. In fact, he says, and his ears are toward their cry. Um, you know, if, you're, if a little child is speaking to you, you would have to 
maybe bend down and do this so that you could hear them, you know, if they're, they're not uh, speaking very loudly. Well, that's the thought. God is bending down. He's listening for you. One of our daughters had a host of troubles breathing when she was little. And guys, she would hack and cough every night. We went to sleep every night to the music of one daughter hacking and coughing through the night. That was normal. Well, she got some medical care, and guess what? Cleared that, most of that up. And then you know what? She's not hacking and coughing. I wonder if she's okay. So then you're lying in bed listening. That's the thought here. God's always listening like a doting parent. Is my child okay? I'm, I'm always ready to listen. And guys, that passage comes up in 1 Peter. 1 Peter quotes this psalm and these verses. And he's giving this same thought for Christians today about care with our words and this understanding that God is always watching over us. He's always listening for our cry, for our prayer. He's like a doting parent who's always there. The care is never interrupted, always present, always watching, always listening. God's opposed to the proud. By the way, that theme David throws in here, if you remember from Psalm 1, David differentiated right off the bat as a paradigm for the rest of the Psalms. There's the righteous and there's the unrighteous. And God has regard for the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That, that goes right through so many Psalms. And you see that here when it says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. That was sort of the ultimate insult for someone back in these days. Kind of like some cultures today where the, my memory is carried on in future generations. If no one knows me, if no one remembers me, it's as if I never lived. Well, that's what David says. That's what it's like for the wicked. You still have this paradigm of the righteous and the wicked. Um, I'm running short on time and I want to be careful of that. Let me give you another example because it's so good. I forgot to look up the reference. You do it later. Hezekiah is a godly king. He's a good king. And Isaiah, the prophet, comes to him one day and he says, uh, you're sick and this sickness is to death. Get your house in order, bud, because it's over. So Isaiah leaves. Well, the text says Hezekiah turns to the wall and he cries, he weeps, and he prays to God. Well, Isaiah does a turnabout. He comes back and he says, hey, Hezekiah, God has seen your tears. He's watching. And guess what else? God has heard your prayer. And God's answering your prayer. He's going to give you an extension of life, 15 years. God saw and he heard. And he's given you exactly what you asked for, this extension of life. That's a great example of that very thing. Guys, for you and I, God's watching. And he's listening. And he's there to help in our every, every, every need. Verses 19 through 22, the summary David doesn't sugarcoat things. Remember, he's looking back on an experience where God delivered him. But what does he say here? Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. He doesn't say God delivers him from the experience of affliction. He says the righteous are afflicted. Not a little, a lot. You know, Christians are promised trouble in this world this world opposed to christ christians are promised trouble david says many are the afflictions of the righteous but the lord delivers him out of them all he keeps all his bones not one of them is broken it's that thought that 
the strong structure of my being is kept intact, even when I'm in these difficult circumstances, I'm still able to respond to life. My bones are not broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That's good, isn't it? None who take refuge in the Lord in Christ will be condemned. That's a great memory verse. Uh, let me just close on this note. Uh, verses 20, of actually 19 through 22, this, sec, this last section. The righteous are afflicted, but their bones aren't broken. Who does that sound like? The righteous are afflicted, but their bones aren't broken. You know, there is Jesus on the cross, the most righteous, suffering the greatest affliction possible, but his bones aren't broken, which it was typical for their bones to be broken, like the, the thieves on both sides of him. Their legs broken, so they would die more quickly. And the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. You remember, Jesus commits his soul, his life, to God, the Father. And then the Father, after his death, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, you and me, then the Father delivers him from death in resurrection. That you, you see the epitome of this, the fulfillment of this concept in Christ, of course, David's greater son. So, David looked back on a trying time and all his thoughts were praise and thanks to God. If we want to know heaven is our home forever, we taste and see. We trust Christ, we rely on his saving work. If we want a hiding place in times of trouble, we take refuge in the Lord, as David did. And if we want to have peace in times otherwise characterized by desperation, we hide away in the love, the confidence, the promises of Christ. That's what we do, just what David did. Well, stand with me, if you will. Take a deep breath. Take a big yawn, if that helps. Stand up, and the worship team will come up. And if the words of this prayer taken from, the themes always taken from the Psalms, reflects your heart, why pray this with me. Father, in our times of trouble, remind us to seek you first and foremost. Let our trials become means of experiencing your surrounding love and presence. Thank you that in Christ you demonstrate your goodness, deliver us from every affliction, and lead us safely home. Amen.